This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today we meet Saul, persecutor of Jesus, and wrestle with the questions of his identity and his experience. We also encounter the entrance of some unlikely characters into God's narrative. Yep, absolutely. We kind of met Saul in the last episode, actually. He made a little cameo appearance, and we said, hold it, we'll meet him later. So here it is, we're meeting him later. As promised. It's like that thing where you see somebody across the across the hall at a party and you're not ready to talk to them yet, yeah. so you turn around. <laughs> That's right. So we weren't ready to see you. But now we are, so now we make the introduction. So yeah, this next chapter tells us a stunning story about this guy named Saul. Shaul. Later known as Paul. But Shaul and his uh, transformation. If you remember, like we said, we introduced to him way back in the last story. As he held the coats, and he oversaw the execution of Stephen, and we're told that he is and he's in this pursuit, intense pursuit of the church, um, and and that this movement is being scattered because of the persecution that he's he's leading. And then all of a sudden, Jesus enters Saul's story, and everything radically changes. Saul is on his way to Damascus. Uh, he's got letters in his hand from the high priest himself to arrest any of Jesus's followers. We probably ought to note, by the way, those letters are intended for, who do you suppose, Brent? I suppose those letters are intended for? Um, perhaps Jews who wanted to convert? Uh, maybe. Definitely Jews, though. Synagogues is where I was headed. Definitely oh, intended synagogues. for a Jewish audience, right? Intended for synagogues. Apparently, this early church is still very much Jewish and is a part of the world of Judaism, right there in our text. As he gets closer to Damascus, a bright light sends him to the ground he hears the voice of Jesus, Jesus, asking Saul why he is trying to persecute him. When Saul asks who is speaking to him, Jesus responds, it is he whom Saul is persecuting. So Brent, how about we actually read the story? Tell us, we're in uh, Acts 9, is that what we're we're doing? Acts 9. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. 
He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Now we're going to circle back to this story. You're going to find out here in in some future episodes. There's a lot of things I'm going to leave untouched on purpose for now, but I do find it interesting as we're reading here um, that Jesus claims not once but twice that it is not uh, followers of Jesus that Saul is persecuting, but who does who does Jesus say in this encounter Saul is actually persecuting? Jesus himself. Jesus himself. Saul is actually persecuting Jesus. I find that to be quite uh, like quite the commentary on what it means to partner with God and be a part of the body of Christ. But I digress. Saul is struck blind, sent to the house of Ananias, uh, who, by the way, isn't too pleased with this idea of helping out the man who is notorious for trying to destroy people like him. He's got some... Uh, Things to say about that. Uh, interesting point on his blindness that I just noticed as reading it. He he didn't realize he was blind until after uh, Jesus left. Like he had his oh, eyes sure. closed the whole time. Yeah, I never really thought about that. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just like the yeah the brilliance of the encounter of Jesus in, yeah. that, in that form. Interesting. Hmm. You raised some other detail-oriented points that I'll circle back to in a future episode. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Excellent. All right. I'm feeling. I'm feeling some connections here. <laughs> it may, it might be in the in the text. Interesting, but enough, enough of that. So this Ananias character, he's not too happy about helping Paul. Uh, But Paul does regain his sight. He enters into a time of deep commitment and training. Actually, if we read through the rest of the chapter, we won't actually read through it. But if you wanted to look through the rest of the chapter, you can see all the places that Paul goes. We're going to circle back to the actual timeline of how long this training takes with Paul. We're going to do that in a future episode on Galatians. So we're going to come back to that. But you can actually see it there in the book of Acts uh, and look at it yourself. Um, But uh, it's not like Saul's a stranger to training. Saul's been trained under, can you remember who? Gamliel. Gamliel the Elder. That's right. One of the greatest rabbis of the first century. He's been trained by Gamliel the Elder. And so he's got a lot to learn, probably unlearn, to quote Yoda. Do we know what the actual time frame is that this is happening? As far as? Is this like five years after Jesus? Ten years after Jesus? Twenty? Yeah, I don't have an exact date, and some of the other dates are going to be debated and argued about. When we get to Galatians, I'm going to argue for a particular timeline, but scholars are kind of all over the map on how long he's where and how you put the pieces of the New Testament together. But we'll go over some of that later. But as far as hard dates, uh, no. I'm going to assume here we're relatively early. Um, We have to be relatively early, according to my timeline, as in within, uh, within a few years, at least, of the whole resurrection of Jesus thing. Um, so, so Paul has a lot to, uh, learn or to unlearn. Uh, he's been trained under Gamaliel, the, the, the elder. He's got a lot of training in Judaism. This isn't a statement that we should just like take lightly as we hear it. Um, uh, Saul was the disciple of one of the greatest names of first century Judaism. Saul's pedigree is incredible. It's the equivalent of being a PhD from Harvard. Saul would be able to walk into any Jewish setting and demand respect simply by being a student of Gamaliel's. Now, we don't know how much of a student he was. Uh, We're never told that he's actually a disciple, a Talmud of Gamaliel. But uh, listen, if you sat under Gamaliel on on any level, you would have been been top cheese. Well, and Paul, at some point, I can't remember which letter it is, he goes through his whole pedigree, and it's uh, impressive. Absolutely. Student of Gamaliel, he says. Uh, but in this Jesus reality, much of what he has learned, even under Gamaliel, is still going to be incomplete. Now, by the way, let's put Gamaliel in context. Gamaliel is the uh, grandson of Hillel. Hillel being the rabbi that Jesus sides with most of the time and seems to align with on some loose level. So when we say Gamaliel, we're not talking about somebody who's anti-Jesus. 
Actually, Paul was in his training very prepped to embrace some of the teachings of Jesus, Gamaliel being the grandson of Hillel. Uh, so, so he's going to have to learn some stuff. And, and I want to ask some questions here before we move on to the next couple chapters, just in passing. What does your subtitle uh, read, Brent, when you look at Acts chapter 9? How does it title the beginning of that section? Saul's conversion. Ah, uh, yes. The great conversion of Saul. Here's what I want to ask. I'm not going to resolve it today. I'm going to resolve it in a later episode. I want to ask if that subtitle is accurate. Is Saul converted? On some level, it's a matter of semantics. You could argue I'm just nitpicky about words. What do we mean technically by conversion? If we we mean that Saul changes religious affiliation, uh, I'd like to ask our listeners to maybe reconsider that. Um, This is why semantics matter, because I believe most of us as Jesus followers tend to take a similar stance toward Judaism. It works like this. God worked through Judaism in the Old Testament, and then God sent Jesus and God changed stories. He abandoned Judaism and started started at square one. If Jews want to be saved, they have to accept Jesus as Messiah and be converted. And they need to switch teams from an old abandoned Judaism to the new thing that God is doing in Jesus, right? Of course. Of course. This is the typical standard story we've been handed. But this actually betrays the story completely that we've been studying. I have been trying to show that this story of God is one narrative from front to back. Our whole Bema podcast is about that. God doesn't change game plans. Jesus is a fulfillment and the demonstration of that game plan that has been true all along. Nothing changes at Jesus. Jesus is showing us what has always been true uh, all the way back, even in Genesis. While we aren't in the book of Romans yet, I think the position we typically have, the one that I just described, goes contrary to the teachings of Romans 11. We have been grafted into the Jewish story, the Jewish tree. We have been grafted into their tree. God didn't plant a brand new tree and then invite everybody to jump on board. God pruned and continued to cultivate the original tree and grafted Gentiles into that While I would admit that Saul was certainly misguided in his persecution of Christians, his intentions come from a zealous pursuit of the God of the Bible. He says so in his letters. The same Jewish God Jesus came to show us is the same Jewish God that Paul believes he's following to a T. So I will ask again, was this a conversion or was this a repentance? Was Saul following the right story and simply had his wires crossed? Once he realized his error, did he switch teams or simply start following the same God, the same faith, the new understanding of what God was up to? And I'll say this again. Did he switch teams or did Saul, Paul, end up following the same God with the same faith, but a new understanding of what God was up to in the world? Was it conversion or was it repentance? Or was it something else entirely? We will talk more about this in a later uh, episode. We'll talk more about Saul and his education. We'll talk more about his new Christian faith and how it fits into Judaism in all the episodes to come in session four. But for now, I simply want to ask that question. I just want to let that question sit with our listeners. Is Paul in this story converted? Does he switch teams or is he still a Jew following and worshiping the God of Israel? If that's the case, is it truly a conversion? Is it a repentance Or is it something else entirely? So that's where I kind of want to leave us. And I want to keep moving. So, uh, in my opinion, the next story that we're going to run into here, Acts chapter 
Where are we at? Brent, Acts chapter 10? Going to be the next chapter? 10, yeah. All right. In my, in my opinion, this next story of the book of Acts is one of the most uh, misunderstood, misapplied, one of the most critical stories in the book of Acts. Uh, in order to set up the context of the story, uh, we might find it helpful to remind ourselves of the Jewish nature of the story. I find that far too many Christian uh, readers of the Bible are going to see what they call the Old Testament as a Jewish story and the New Testament as a predominantly Gentile story. And we've worked really hard, just as I just said about the last story, we worked really hard to preserve the Jewishness of Jesus in our walk through the gospel accounts. Uh, but it's going to be more difficult, right, for us to maintain a Jewish perspective through the record of Acts. I mean, the whole book of Acts as a record of the Gentile church, right? Not exactly. I would serve us well to stop and realize and remind ourselves, Brent, what has this whole story been up to this point? How many, what kind of Gentile story have we bumped into? Oh, I mean, we had a little bit of Pontius Pilate. Sure. We had a few characters here and there. Absolutely. But the story itself? The story itself, all Jewish. Yeah, the story has been Jewish. There have been, as you point out, Brent, plenty of Gentile interaction with the New in the New Testament. And it's not unique to the New Testament. Gentiles are all over Tanakh as well, the Hebrew scriptures. This interaction has always fit within a Jewish worldview and a Jewish context. The story of the Ascension is a story about a Jewish rabbi and his Jewish Talmudim, the story of Pentecost. We already pointed this out earlier in this session. Brent, it's a Jewish story of which festival? Shavuot. Shavuot. Absolutely. Very Jewish festival. It's a story about Jews, not about Gentiles. It, that whole story, the whole pouring out of the Spirit, none of that is Gentile. It's completely Jewish. The stories about believers sharing their possessions, breaking bread, praying together are stories about what kind of people, Brent? Jews. Jews. The problem with 3,000 of them. 3,000. Absolutely. The problem with the widows, the stoning of Stephen, the life chains of Saul, it's all what, Brent? It's all Jews. It's all Jews. It's all Jewish. The story of Cornelius presents the first encounter with a Gentile not being assumed as a Jewish convert and a Jewish apostle confronted in his worldview about how to interact with a fellowship of the goyim. The goyim is a Hebrew word for Gentiles. So how about you read, uh, how about you read Acts chapter 10? And, and, and I'm afraid that if I stop you, I'm going to screw up what's supposed to happen here, Brent. So I may, if I can practice some self-control, I may just let you read Acts 10, and then we'll circle back and maybe look at some passages if we need to. How about that? I do have one question. Okay, I, I love it. Uh, is, is this maybe a new way to consider the idea of engaging in Shephelah? Ooh, I like that. A very New Testament context for the old, what we, what, we, what we looked at in Tanakh, that Old Testament conversation of Shephelah. Absolutely. Uh, 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 the, the Jesus, the post-Jesus, the resurrected Jesus context of Shephelah. Absolutely. In a, like a Sermon on the Mount sort of sense, Jesus might say, you've heard it said that you're supposed to engage uh, the Gentiles and bless them. And now I say, actually, you're supposed to invite them in sure, as part absolutely. of the family. Ooh, I like that. Okay. I like that. Okay. I like that. Okay. Something to think about. We'll see. We'll yep. see if Acts 10 backs up my thoughts. All right. We'll see. I like that. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa, 
to bring back a man named Simon who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. So get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. All right. I've exercised all the self-control I can. I'm going to stop you. Perfect. Can hardly do it. All right. So this story begins with a man named Cornelius who lives in Caesarea, which, by the way, happens to be a very Roman city. It's not a Jewish city. It's not even a Greek city. Caesarea was built by Herod the Great. Surprise, surprise. In, in honor of, guess who? Brent? Caesar. Caesar. Caesarea. This is the one on the sea. This is the one on the sea. Caesarea Maritime, right? Um, and so uh, it's a very Roman city. It doesn't share the values of the Jewish world of Judea and Samaria. It's not even Herodian. Like, it's Roman. Like, it's, there's no, like, corner at this point in history, as far as we've found. This is not like, you don't have a large Jewish presence here. You're not going to find a synagogue. There will be one later. later. I'm just not sure it dates early enough, but I could be wrong. And there is, in ancient history, Jews around the region of Caesarea. So, I, I don't want to make too big of a deal about that. I'm not saying there are any Jews in Caesarea. I probably overstated my case. I'm saying Caesarea does not represent a Jewish worldview. Thank you for asking that follow-up question. Um, but this, this centurion who does live in Caesarea has a love for God, the God of Israel, and he has a heart of righteousness that gives to the marginalized and shows hospitality. I've often wondered this is the same Caesarea that built the synagogue in Capernaum. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? After an incredible God encounter, he sends for Peter, who happens to be down the road at Joppa. As the messengers head out for Joppa, we are told about Peter, who is having an encounter of his own. He goes up on the roof of the home to catch a nap and has a vision of a sheet coming down with all kinds of animals. The passage specifically mentions that there are unclean animals included, reptiles and four-footed animals of all kinds, what Torah says is unclean for consumption. A voice speaks to Peter and directs him to kill and eat. Peter objects on the grounds that eating unclean animals is against the law, and he has never done this in all of his life. The voice tells Peter not to call unclean what God has made clean. It's at this point where biblical interpretation, in my experience, starts to go off the rails for many of us. I have heard numerous times that this is where God decides all food is now clean and kosher law doesn't exist anymore. But such an interpretation completely ignores the details of the passage and demonstrates horrific biblical exegesis. Outside of the fact that there is a parenthetical statement 
in your manuscript, in your Bible that says, in this, God was declaring all foods clean. But if you read that in the English, it's clear that this seems like it's an insertion. It, it feels awkward in the English because it is awkward, and that's not even looking at the Greek. It's probably a later addition into a manuscript, but I digress. You don't have to agree with me on that. But it's certainly not good ex- exegesis of the details that are sitting in front of us. First, here's the first observation. God has, has not made unclean animals clean. God has not made unclean animals clean. God has very clearly called them unclean. This is why Peter is so confused by the vision. Three times the vision repeats itself, and each time Peter insists on being obedient. The reason for Peter is, it's clear, he's not just being a a stubborn, stiff-necked jerk. He's like, okay, I get you, because the voice says, do not call unclean what I have called clean. To which Peter's response is essentially, yeah, I know, but you called these things unclean. So that's not the issue. You, you have called these things unclean, so I won't eat. And we, we always think that the vision is trying to tell Peter, no, these things are clean now. That's not, no. That's, Peter's like, no, not at all. I will not eat these things because these things are unclean. The voice says not to call unclean what is clean. Peter's logic says that's just fine, but that lizard is unclean and I'm not going to eat it. Second point, we cannot forget the context of the vision. Peter is being prepared by God for a world-shaking encounter with Cornelius. Peter's world is about to be blown up. To understand the cultural context, we have to understand what was called Jewish halakha. I believe we talked about halakha before, the oral tradition that teaches about how to walk out God's commands. When God gave you Torah, he gave you 613 commandments to follow. The problem has always been trying to figure out how to follow those 613 commandments correctly. In order to help in this process, the Jewish world was working on a canonized oral tradition, what would later become the Mishnah and the Talmud. This oral tradition stated that since you are trying to avoid contact with unclean things, a Jew should not eat with a Gentile. They are unfamiliar with kosher law and do things all the time that make themselves unclean. Brent, I eat kosher. You, of course, do not. Do you suppose you're breaking all kinds of kosher laws in your kitchen? Not for me. Not for you. But like if I were to come to your kitchen, do you think there are all kinds of things that are you following Levitical code in your kitchen? No. No, of course not. Right. So the Jews said this is a problem. So obviously I can't eat with you. If I'm trying to be clean, I can't eat with you because you're doing all kinds of things that are unclean. What is often overlooked in this conversation is the difference between God's written law and the oral law, what we just called halakha. To this day, the Jewish faith will see the oral law with similar authority, in fact, in some Orthodox circles, with more authority as the written law. The Talmud teaches that when Moses came down the mountain with the written law, he also came down the mountain with the oral law on the same day. Whether you you or they believe this to be literally true is beside the point. The application is that you cannot have written law without oral law. Like, you cannot just have a written law. We are all going to have oral law. Christian tradition is no different. We all have our oral laws, our our unwritten interpretations, those kind of things. I think this observation is true on principle, but often poorly applied. As we've tried to show through the life of Jesus, he often questioned, questioned the oral traditions and critiqued them while always upholding Torah to the letter. Peter finds himself, does that make sense, Brent? Did I explain that well enough? 
like Jesus, always upholds written Torah, does he always say oral Torah is bad? No. No. In fact, I would assume that most of the time he probably even observes oral Torah. But Jesus is not afraid to what, Brent? To uh, cast it aside if... If uh... if it's interpreted Torah incorrectly. Right. Which is why the authority of Jesus is so important here. Because Jesus did come and he did say things like you've heard it said, I say unto you. Like Jesus did say, listen, the oral Torah is fine, but sometimes the oral Torah is not what God meant in his written Torah. And so Jesus does at times cast aside oral in favor of proper interpretation of written. That's just how I read it as a Jesus follower, even as a Jew. So Peter finds himself in a world that has declared kosher law by extension means that Gentiles are unclean. And you can search your written Torah as long as you want, your Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. God never said such a thing. Nevertheless, at the point of the vision, Peter is very confused. But his encounter with Cornelius is going to fill in the blanks. People often act like interpreting this passage is arbitrary and an ambiguous thing. But Peter interprets the vision for us. Peter's actually going to tell us how to interpret the vision himself. He tells the people in Acts 10, once he gets to Cornelius' house, that they are well aware of the Jewish traditions. But he has recently been shown that people are not unclean. To be clear, the vision of Peter has nothing to do with food. I'll say that again. The vision of Peter has nothing to do with food. The vision is about people. The food issue for Peter is black and white, which is why he did what, Brent? Three times he Three times denied to eat it. He refused to eat it because that issue is clear for him. There's no debate about this. Black and white. Certain foods are clean, certain foods are unclean. But God is telling Peter that people are not unclean, and he needs to see them and interact with them as such. So how about you keep reading Acts 10, and I may even stop you and have you emphasize where Peter interprets the vision for us, because this is going to be parenthetical statements and acts aside, (laughs) whether they're in the manuscript or not in the manuscript. Uh, Peter's going to do the interpretation for us, so that's going to help me out here as a reader. So go ahead. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. Okay, now Peter has just done something that only because of the visions would he be willing to do. He's entering a Gentile's home. Now, he should typically not do this, and maybe he would do it and just run the risk of being unclean or whatever, like kind of like touching a leper, so to speak. But this is is new ground for Peter, so let's see what he says. Go ahead. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God... Which law is he talking about there, Brent? Uh, The... Well, I guess that'd be the oral law. Be the oral law. Now, it's going to be hard because in the Greek, the word is namas. And unless it has the definite article, it's against the law. The law. We don't know if he's talking about Torah. And here, there's no definite article. It's against our law, our tradition, our little l law. Does your new NIV, does it capitalize L there? It does not. Okay, so I think that's a good call on their part. This is just our tradition, our oral law. 
Okay, go ahead. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Okay, God has shown me that I should not call anyone, and the Greek there is more specific, any person, which if you read in your ESV, it's going to actually translate it that way. I should not call any person clean or unclean, or I should not call them, let me actually say that correctly. But God has shown me that I should not call any person impure or unclean. Your ESV is going to say common or, or impure. I believe. Well, now you're just forcing me to look it up. Yep. Yeah, ESV, God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Okay, perfect. So the emphasis here is on Peter points out, listen, and this is not about food. Peter's like, I know how to feel about food, and I won't be eating any of your pork. Thank you very much. But God has shown me that actually you are not unclean as a person. The food may be, but you are not. That's what God has shown me. This is not about food. This is about people. This is not about the law, capital L. This is about how our little L laws get in the way of us interacting with what God cares about most, which is people. Go ahead. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Does it say three days ago? Three days ago. Verse 10? Uh, verse 30. Or, ver- yeah, excuse me, verse 30, Cornelius yeah. answered uh-huh. three days ago. Yep. That's wild. Old NIV says four days ago. Oh, ESV says four days. Yeah. I think they've probably done the whole Jewish math there and went, oh, it's three days as we think about it. That is really interesting. Okay. No, sorry. I digress. Three days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. Because the first Pentecost was to who, Brent? What was the whole story? To the Jews. It's a Jewish story. But now all of a sudden it's happened to Gentiles. And they're shocked that they can experience God in the fullness that they did as well. Go ahead and finish. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, 
Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Which is a big deal. Okay, now a side note. I don't have any time for side notes in this episode, Brent, but I'm doing a quick nice side note because it matters. Uh, in this explanation, and you were actually asking me a question before we even started recording today about Pentecost, about how Peter, when he's speaking at Pentecost, references you, like you killed Jesus. And we spent all that time in session three saying, who killed Jesus? The chief priests. The chief priests. And here again, Peter says, the Jews. Well, the Jews, they they rejected him. The Jews, they killed him. The Jews, they put him to death. And that's, that is an anti-Semitic translation that we just assume. The word eduai in the Greek is a word that more more accurately translates Judeans. It was a word that's used all throughout Greek literature, not to refer to just Jews ethnically, but a particular region of Jews. And those Jews are in Judea. Now, the Sadducees would be a part of the Judean crowd, where the Pharisees are not Judeans. The Pharisees live in what region, Brent? The Galilee. The Galilee. So up north, you have the Galileans. In the south, you have the Judeans. I think what Peter is saying here is those Judeans put Jesus to death. Those Herodians, those Sadducees that saw Jesus as a threat to their system. Now, we never blame the Herodians, and I'm not going to start blaming the Herodians now, but I think Peter's use of the word here is more Judean and certainly not just the Jews, because he would be one of them, this whole idea of Jews. So I think when Peter talks to the crowd at Pentecost, I think when Peter talks about Jews here, I think when Luke references the Jews all throughout the book of Acts, he's very specifically using the term to refer to as Judeans. And a lot of literary scholarship is pointing that out for us today and trying to clear that up because we've just translated Jews because we made knee-jerk assumptions about what the word actually means. So there's actually an article in the back of the uh, Jewish Annotated New Testament. Um, I think that was put out by Oxford, if I remember correctly. But we could link that in the show notes if we want to. Uh, Jewish Annotated New Testament. I think about uh, 50% of their articles are great, and the other 50% I don't like. But uh, it does have a good article about Eduai in the uh, in the back of that Bible there. I don't recommend the study Bible. It's an NRSV. It's not my favorite translation. There's nothing really good. Anyway, but there are some good articles in the back that I like, and that's one of them. So uh, there you have that. Uh, It's a great little side note. Let's see here. Let me uh, keep working so we can get out of here in under an hour. Um, uh, Some astute readers, if you're following my line of argument here, might be saying, hey, wait a minute, Marty. Are you telling me that I should be eating kosher? Uh, I, I need you to wait on that specific answer to, to a little bit deeper into session four. But the question itself is brilliant, and I'm glad you're asking it because that question, that question, should I, if you're a Gentile listener and you're going, wait a minute, are you telling me I should be following Torah? That is what your New Testament is about. Your New Testament is about that sole question, at least in large part. So certainly the world of the apostles began to shake that day. God is starting to chip away at their assumptions and blow apart old wineskins so that he can restore a world that he has always been trying to reach. He told Abraham what at the beginning of the story, Brent? You will be a blessing to all nations. How many nations? All of them. All of them. The story of the conquest put his people at the crossroads of the earth so that they could bring shalom to chaos in the midst of how many nations, Brent? All of them. All in the middle. That's right. The prophets spoke again and again of God's people being a light to the what, Brent? To the nations. To the nations and a hope for the Gentiles. For the goyim. Sometimes our oral traditions and our interpretations, even today, get in the way of what God is trying to do. When he blows apart our parameters, our insulators, our whole world begins to shake. But a shaking world of religious uncertainty is often the beginning of a revolution of redemption and a liberation of the captives. 
So, of course, if Peter is prepared, isn't prepared, if Peter wasn't prepared, Peter, like the guy, for this world-altering shift of understanding, the rest of this Jewish movement isn't ready for it either. Peter's interactions and behaviors with a Gentile, these rumors, can you imagine the rumors, Brent? He was at Cornelius's house. I heard he ate with them, fellowshiped with them. I kind of wonder what was going through Peter's mind when, when he was having the vision and he gets asked twice to eat the food right. that he's not supposed to eat. And he's like, oh, please don't do it a third time. Please don't do it a third time. Yeah. And then he gets asked the third time. He's like, no, I just can't do it. Yeah, I'm holding <laughs> my ground. So it's always three times with Peter. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's a great point. I love it. Three times. Again, three times. The rumors of his inclusion of such an outsider without first making him a covenantal part of the story. He hung out with him without making him Jewish first. The rumors, they have been set off in the church at large. Peter has to defend his actions and very clearly tell the story. It's clear that the discussions are not easy. And on some level, it's comforting to know that even the early church had its problems. They had problems with doctrines and traditions. They had problems communicating with each other. They had problems finding places of agreement. Unfortunately, the early church does model for us how to navigate these difficulties and find a place of resolution. More on that in a couple episodes, Brent Billings. But they are certainly human, just like you and I. I I, I find great solace in this. After people tell the story of both his vision and his experience, coupled with his ability to speak as the ringleader of Jesus' disciples, he is the great Peter, the rock upon which this movement is built. Once he explains all this, once he explains the movement as a whole, the people there accept the testimony of Peter and have enough humility to be able to rejoice in his plan, in the plan that God has, that they previously misunderstood, but now they see it taking place in front of them. The Gentiles are coming in. So how about you read for us a portion? What are you going to read from us out of uh, chapter 11, Brent? Uh, Just the first part here. Okay. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa praying and in a trance, I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners and it came down to where I was. I looked into it and saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. I replied, Surely not, Lord. Nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and then it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, depending on how you read the rest of Acts chapter 11, you may get a more realistic picture. Uh, We are told the church begins to move and to scatter from the region of Judea and Samaria 
to reach into the world of Asia and Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. The disciples send some leaders north to where does the church kind of the center of headquarters moves to where, Brent? Uh, is it Ephesus? No, not quite. I mean, mm. it does eventually. But in here, actually. Mm, Antioch. Yes. And you look at your subtitles in your Bible, you see this move to Antioch. So the, the church kind of moves from being centered in Jerusalem to moving north to Antioch. What is unclear is whether or not there is a tension between the church of the diaspora, the diaspora, like that means the scattering, when the Jews scattered over the modern world. Is there, is there a tension between the church of the diaspora, the Greco-Roman world, and the church of Jerusalem? And how deep is that tension? I find that most of the conversations we have for basic Bible study, we aren't even aware of the tensions between the New Testament worldviews. But the issue is profoundly significant. Most New Testament scholars are going to identify a deep rift in the worldviews between the Jewish Church of Jerusalem, the Church of the Judeans, and the expanding Church of Asia and Asia Minor, what some people are going to later call the Church of Paul, the Church of John and Paul. Some liberal scholars will go as far as to say there is a major schism that is never repaired. According to these scholars, the Jewish church of Judea, led by James, does not survive and falls out of existence, or maybe more appropriately, just kind of sinks into what we understand as historic Judaism, kind of losing its Jesus distinctiveness. The church that remains a Gentile church that will be largely Roman in nature sheds its Judaism and the law and moves into a new day and the Christian faith that we all know so so well. But I believe this ignores, I can't agree with this liberal scholarship. I think this ignores the biblical text. It ignores what we read about in the book of Acts. And modern scholarship is telling us quite clearly that the church of Asia and Asia Minor was much more Jewish than we used to anticipate in scholarship. However, An attempt to act like there is no tension between the church in Jerusalem and the church in Antioch would be just as ignorant. There are details living within the book of Acts that we're going to look at in the episodes to come. The the New Testament writings that clearly show how these pesky Gentiles make this Jewish Jesus faith quite difficult. And not everybody agrees on how to deal with it. It's coming in just a few chapters in Acts. To understand this context is to understand not just a piece of the New Testament, not just a few chapters of Acts, but to understand the New Testament conversation as a whole. But we're going to keep moving on that. This is what session four is all about. So we're just, we're, we're introducing some things here. Peter and his experience with Cornelius is really rocking the boat and the waters aren't going to calm down anytime soon. Unknown by Peter at this point, is that God is preparing a special prophet for this new frontier. Who is it, Brent? This is Paul. Yeah, this yeah. guy who just left for training in Damascus. This guy who just left, his name was Shaul. Peter doesn't know it at this point. At this point, Peter doesn't know. Uh, while people are aware of Saul's life-changing experience, we will see later from the book of Galatians that Saul has been spending significant time working through his own version of the gospel. God is training Saul and teaching him how to take this announcement of a new king and a new what, Brent? New kingdom. A new kingdom into a world radically different from the Jewish world of Judea. When the church moves to Antioch, they send Barnabas to help lead the efforts. Barnabas encourages the believers and helps lay some foundations, but then immediately sets off to find Shaul, whom he brings to operational headquarters. The church sends out Barnabas and Saul on their first mission to check on the growing movement, 
to spread the gospel and to start planting some healthy faith communities throughout the region. They set sail for Asia and arrive at their first stop of Cyprus, only to have their plans changed. But I digress. That is for our next episode. That was a healthy discussion today, Brent. A brief intro- introduction to the Gentile part of the story. You may want to you may want to listen to this episode actually a couple times. There's a lot of stuff in there, and the next episode I'm so excited about. Like the next episode is like one of the conversations for me in the body of work that I'm a part of. It is one of the pivotal conversations in understanding our New Testament. So I'm super excited about next episode. So we should end this one and go there. All right. Sounds great. If you have any questions, uh, get a hold of us on Twitter, Marty Solomon or EIBCB. And uh, check out the Bama Discipleship Facebook page. Marty's always posting stuff on there. Uh, it's a good good little community to be a part of. We'd love to hear from you uh, in whatever way. You can find any details you need about the show at BamaDiscipleship.com. So thanks for joining us on the Bama Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.